This time on the Rule Right Radio podcast with New York Mike. We saw World War II coming. In the 1930s, we saw Hitler rising. We saw what he was doing. How come we didn't do anything to stop Hitler? Well, we didn't know. We didn't know there were concentration camps. We never saw that. Now we're seeing that we did know. We did. Yeah, it's not like today, Ukraine. We can see it clearly on TV. We can interview people. We couldn't do all that. But we knew we saw it coming. We certainly saw that there was a war brewing. We saw what was going on in Europe. And we saw what was going on with Japan and China. It wasn't like we didn't know. And we didn't do anything. Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, while the world was at war, boom, we're attacked. We're dragged into this war. We did nothing. We did not prepare. And we saw it coming. And you don't think it was an existential threat? When almost 500,000 Americans are killed in the war, don't tell me that's not existential. The point is we were unprepared, just as unprepared as we are right now for what's coming. And we don't know what's coming. trousers and motorcycle boots and a black leather jacket with his name on the back. He does a patriotic podcast called Roll Right Radio. His name is New York Mike and welcome to the show. This is Roll Right Radio on New York Mike. I've been told and I know because I have been lately, especially lately, listening to my podcast that after my intro song, Black Denim Trousers, if you don't know that song, I'll tell you about it. But anyway, that it says, this is New York Mike, and this is Roll Right Radio. So when I say it, I replicate what was already said, so it's said twice. Well, I apologize for that. And we're going to fix it. When I start off, I, that's how I start off. And by the way, Black Denim Trousers, that's a song in the 50s that got me into, like, my motorcycle head when I was a kid. Honestly, I think that living in Sheepshead Bay and Coney Island, and, you know, in Coney Island, when you walk down Surf Avenue, everything is amazing when you're a little kid. I haven't been to Coney Island in a while, but you walk down Surf Avenue, it's magical. It's all rides and games, and man, it's Coney Island, for crying out loud. And the biggest attraction in Coney Island, and the first attraction, when you come from, you know, Brighton Beach and Sheepshead Bay, you come into Coney Island, and you hit Surf Avenue, the first thing you see is the cyclone. The biggest, the original, you know, the real deal, the cyclone. That's what I always call it, the cyclone. And so in front of the cyclone, there was always motorcycles, wheels back to the curb. It was always Harleys and Indians. Now, my memories as a kid growing up, you go into Coney Island, and most of the time we were hitching rides in the back of the bus. <laughs> It was the Surf Avenue bus that left Sheepshead Bay, Notion Avenue, wound its way around, and then boom, ended up ended up in Coney Island. And we would jump on the back of the bus, put our little tiny fingernails in the little windows in the back and put our little feet on the back bumpers, or we'd sneak on. Who had a dime for a bus ride? My God, can you even imagine? No, you can't. <laughs> Not unless you live through it. 
I can sit here and tell you that I remember when it went from 10 cents to 15 cents. Not that it meant that much to me. I only got caught once in a while. But yeah, if we didn't hitch on the back, we'd sneak in the back door. When all the passengers came out, we would go in. Look, when you grow up in the projects and you're poor, you do what you have to do to survive. And you never forget those days. They never go away. You can't erase them. No matter how much money you earn, no matter how wealthy you get. And I've had a very amazing degree of success in my life, thank God. And I appreciate every bit of it. But growing up like that, it's just, it's who you are. It doesn't change. You know, it's just the way it is. Do you want to do that? Is that the preferred lifestyle? It's the only lifestyle you know. Jumping the turnstiles to get on the subways. That was normal. It was just how we did it. And so it's how you had to do it. The only way you could do it. So to go to school, we got a bus pass. So you had to have a bus pass. Because if you took the bus to school, and I went to Lincoln High School, and out of local schools, obviously you walk to your public school, you walk to your junior high school. That was a long walk, by the way. And then they built Shell Bank, and then they built Sheepshead Bay, which was right there. But before that was built, we had to take a pretty long bus ride. I don't think I could have walked to Lincoln High School, not in any sense of reality. It was a, a good hour and a half walk. So anyway, that was what's going on. I'm talking about the 50s and motorcycles at Coney Island. And I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but I'm thinking out loud. I talked about black denim trousers. And so I think it was Vaughn Monroe. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure who sung that song. They had that deep voice and it was like badass at the time. And the visual in my head of going to Coney Island virtually every day and passing the cyclone with all the Harleys and Indians in front of the cyclone. What was more exciting, the cyclone or watching those motorcycles pull in, roaring, you know, in and out? And not only the motorcycles, but those characters that rode those bikes, these charismatic-looking guys and beautiful girlfriends. That's just the way it was in my mind. Tony Pastors in New York City was burlesque. Today, they morphed into titty bars, <laughs> but that was burlesque. And Tony Pastors was a famous place down on West 4th, 5th, that area of the village. And the same thing, Harleys and Indians all out front. But I used to live down in that area, and I used to see it every day. And then the song came out. We wore black denim trousers and motorcycle boots. He had a black leather jacket with an eagle on the back. They said, what, what do you want for a theme song? Well, what was that I going to pick? That's my theme song. That's a theme song of my life because that's where it started. And nothing changes in life. I'm telling you, I don't care. Wherever you started from, that's who you are. And you could think you could buy your way out of it. You can certainly get all the toys and nice clothes and all the things, but you are who you are. And if you don't want to accept that, then you're going to be fighting yourself all your life. And we are who we are as a country, as a nation. Who we are is a rebellious a nation that broke away from the British. That's who we are. You go back to the Revolution. Go before the Revolutionary War. We were brash. We weren't going to be pushed around. Why? Because we weren't under their thumb. 
we're across an ocean and you know we can get away with stuff and we did when other colonies you know the british colonies, whether it was how they treated scotland and ireland and everything was right they were on them and eventually they broke away kind of sort of too but they're still part of it all but we just rebelled no taxation without representation the boston tea party and all the rest of it and the lead up to that and then the big breakaway the declaration of independence yeah we're independence there comes a time when we won't take it anymore <laughs> remember the movie that's america when we're ready to say enough's enough, that's it. We're not going to take it anymore. But do we really, have we ever really understood that whoever you are, whatever nation ever existed, was always under a threat that someone else is going to take them over? That's, that's who we are as humans. It's natural. I'm not saying it's good. It's natural. It's natural for one group of cave people to raid another group of cave people to take over their goods or to say that, hey, those caves over there, they're influencing our kids in the way we don't want. They're taking all the bananas off the trees. They're harvesting our crops and we need to get whatever the reasons are. That's how civilization has grown. That's how the map of Europe and Asia and everywhere else on the planet has been formed by conquest, by one nation taking over another nation. And now whether you like it or not, you, you're watching it in real time. You're watching what Russia's doing. You're watching what China's doing. People will say to you, oh, that's America taking over, trying to take over Vietnam. America trying to take over, take over South Korea. America trying to, uh, you know what, I don't agree. Not at all. But I've heard the criticism, but you're watching it. And does that not feel like a threat? Why not? How come? Do we think we're so insulated because we have the Pacific Ocean on one side, the Atlantic Ocean on the other side? Do we think that we're not vulnerable anymore? Do we think that, oh, yeah, we came through World War II, we survived 9-11? Well, you know what? Those are what we call existential threats. Existential. What does existential mean? It refers, and it's always there. Whatever your nation, whatever your country, look at Ukraine. Learn from the experience of others so you don't have to go through it, good or bad. Existential refers to the very existence of something. And just understand, a government exists to ensure that the people subject to its actions, in our case, citizens, are safe, organized with a purpose and a plan for that purpose to succeed, okay? In our case, for citizens to have, among our other rights, given by God, by the way, in this country, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The framework, the environment in which this government accomplishes its mission is spelled out in our Constitution to succeed. And anything that threatens that government's existence 
or threatens our Constitution. Those are existential threats. I pointed out that we will with certainty, this certainly, endure the same existential threats that Ukraine is enduring right now. We've been faced with that in the past. The problem we take so much for granted in our daily lives, we don't see these as threats until they're here. We go to work, we party, take care of our families, spend time with friends, pursue hobbies and dreams and success and complain a lot about things we think are out of our control. We make some effort to fix things within our control. And then when those things we think are out of our control or are being handled by people we put in charge of handling those things, and those things begin effectively hurting us, we begin to get involved. I'm trying to explain that we just, we settle. If we do well, great. If we don't do well, we blame it on something else until things get so bad. But by then, so much damage has been done. We have little choice but to find new leaders usually when our choices for those leaders are limited. Yeah, look where we are right now. Look at the situation that we've got ourselves into. We've got ourselves into. I'm not going to blame this on Biden or the Democrats. or It's us. We're the ones that got to take care of this. We got to fix it. We have a country. We have government. We have a constitution. And we keep on electing people and say, okay, get the job done. I don't want to bash Trump because I love Trump. But a lot of people did. You know, I thought things were going great under Trump. Yeah, we had a pandemic. It was being handled by the government, which, by the way, after Trump, it wasn't being handled anymore. Well, let's not get into that. Let's just understand we elect these people. And then when things get so bad and we're there now, and you can see it. I'm not talking about Republican versus Democrat. I'm talking about the nation rising up. When 30, 32, 6, 8, 10, 42 percent of people, all you could find that could say that this administration, this government that's running the country today is a government they approve of. Something's wrong there. When there's an election, it's within decimal points. 50.1 versus 49.9. Or It's always... That's where it is. We've agreed that the majority wins. And we say, okay, we're going to have elections and whoever shows up to vote, they're going to get this. Okay, we've agreed that. But very seldom do you see like 10 points difference. You just don't. It's something's wrong. And clearly there's something wrong right now. Do I have to spell it out? It's been a disastrous what, year and a half? Is it not even a year and a half? But it's been a disaster, an absolute disaster. And now we're looking to switch leaders, and that's what happens. And who do we have? What's our choices? They're limited to those who got involved because of similar concerns. Okay, there's people sincerely throwing themselves in the ring and getting themselves elected on a local basis the local city councils, and, and then they grow and they get to be this and that, the mayor and the governor. Those who've been involved and didn't foresee or forestall these problems, didn't do anything, 
you know, before they became threats. And the majority, who because they're part of it, who've been involved, and this is the majority, they've been involved for the power and profit of being in an in-charge position. That's the majority. These are lawyers who become rainmakers. Rainmakers are the, the lawyers who bring in the money, bring in the big clients. I've spent enough time in my life lobbying for everything, motorcycle issues, veterans issues, just plain old business issues, common sense issues. I've been to Washington, Sacramento, Albany, state capitals around the country. And I know I bash lawyers. I can't stand the industry. It is not a profession, not even close. It's an industry. And, and I don't like it. And I don't like the fact I go to these establishments of government. They're just packed with lawyers. And these lawyers, are, I'm sorry, I'm not apologizing. They're there to make money. They're there to grow their business, their law firms. It's just the way that I experienced that without a doubt throughout my life. And I've been doing this for a long time. So not every problem isn't a threat. And every threat isn't existential. But every threat can become existential. And today's problem is there are so many threats that can become these serious threats to our existence that a serious existential threat is virtually inevitable. It just is. Clearly, it's better to learn from the experience of others. Like I said, to learn, good or bad. This is why we learn history, study science, medicine, math, chemistry, biology, to learn, to improve and create, improve our lives and everyone else's. We're also supposed to learn from their mistakes and ours in everything we study, whatever it is. Okay, but we don't. Well, maybe we do, but if we learn the mistakes at the same pace that we learn to improve, we may get in trouble because if we don't improve at every turn, we won't know it. If you don't invent the next thing, you don't have it, you don't know it, you don't know what it is. The pace may be slow, but you know, we'll still be improving. If we don't learn from every mistake we make, we make these mistakes again. There's a difference. We need to learn from every mistake. The pace of learning from our mistakes has got to be a lot faster, a lot stronger than the pace that we create. And it's not. If we don't learn from every mistake, we'll make these mistakes again, including those that have been existent. You know, sometimes. We'll just put our heads in the sand and say that can't happen to us. And that's why I say we need to look at Ukraine, learn from their mistakes, or better yet, see if we made the same mistakes, learn, see whether it can threaten us now so we don't wait until it's too late to come together to put our differences aside and focus as one nation that includes learning from our own mistakes. And we've made those mistakes. We don't have to go back very far. You want to see the mistakes? Yeah, you can go back to the beginning. But you only have to go back 75, 80 years. World War II, Vietnam. And I, I'm not saying it was a mistake. I'm saying that the same thing with World War II. I'm not saying it was a mistake. How we handled it was a mistake. 
9-11. That might be a mistake that it ever happened. COVID, we don't even know because the CDC, Fauci, whatever, they refuse to investigate. They will not investigate how COVID started, where it started, and all the other mysteries of COVID. Yeah, it should be a 2020 thing on TV or something. Those are the things, just to name a few, we can add a few. We all have concerns that we feel strongly about. I just want to spend a minute, because you could say World War II, we couldn't help it. We were not prepared for World War II. We saw World War II coming. I've said this before on podcasts. I've said it in speeches that I've made all over the place. We saw World War II coming. In the 1930s, we saw Hitler rising. We saw him attacking. We saw him invading. We saw what he was doing. And yeah, people will say today, well, if, when I was younger, you know, when I said, how come we didn't do anything to stop Hitler? Well, we didn't know. We didn't know there were concentration camps. We never saw that. Now we're seeing that we did know. We did. Yeah, it's not like today. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's not, you know, where it's in our face and we can see everything going on in Ukraine. We can see it clearly on TV. We can interview people. We couldn't do all that. But we knew we saw it coming. We certainly saw that there was a war brewing. We saw what was going on in Europe and we saw what was going on with Japan and China. We had American volunteers by the thousands in China, the flying tigers for crying out loud. General Chenault, there was so much going on that was in your face. There were American volunteers all over the world. So it wasn't like we didn't know. And we didn't do anything. Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941, while the world was at war, the war was raging. And all of a sudden, Boom, we're attacked, we're dragged into this war, and that's when we start preparing. That's when we get, quote-unquote, Rosie the Riveter. The men are drafted, and women have to go in the factories and build the planes and the ships and the ammunition and the guns. and the. There was so much of a disruption of this country, not because we weren't prepared, because we did nothing. We did not prepare. And we saw it coming. And you don't think it was an existential threat? When almost 500,000 Americans are killed in the war, don't tell me that's not existential and don't compare it to COVID. But while we're on the subject, look at COVID. We certainly weren't prepared for COVID. And I can tell you, I've been to Washington. I've been in the office of the Health and Human Services when Tommy Thompson, the former government of Wisconsin, was director of HHS under George Bush. And I went in there and saw the map of the world on the wall. And what was he preparing for? The bird flu. These are things they talked about, all these possibilities. So what did we do that closed our eyes? to the possibilities, or even fostered those possibilities. What we you know what Fauci did or might have done, 
some of it he, we know he did to fund this disease. It's there. It's in black and white. We see it. No, it's not in black and white. It's in Technicolor on television. So we're going to, what, just make believe that it didn't happen and we had no part of it, that we didn't know anything about it and it snuck up on us. And after it got here, we were just totally unprepared. What do we do? Lockdowns? Do you remember how many people died with these respirators and we were not ready? That is an existential threat. A million Americans have died from COVID. Now, okay, we can argue from COVID with COVID, whether underlying conditions, not, it's not the point. The point is we were unprepared, just as unprepared as we are right now for what's coming. And we don't know what's coming, but we have people on the front lines whether it's the military on the front lines being prepared for World War III, for what's going on with China and in Vietnam. What, as a Vietnam vet, I always say the same thing. What got us here? They could say it was this, it was that. We're here. We're here. And I have a mission that these people of South Vietnam who are threatened, the threat is being carried out. They're being killed. Their homes, their villages, their farms, everything they have is being taken over by the North. And we need to stop it. Okay, boom, that's my job. Do I question the politics, how we got there? Why we're there? Some people say, oh, it was Eisenhower. Oh, it goes back to the end Ben Fu when the French in 54 were killed. <laughs> you know, it's like, wait a minute. Okay, it's way beyond my pay grade, especially when I'm a 21-year-old kid. So I look back and say, we won that war every day. Yeah, you know, I don't know what we did in 1962 under Kennedy. You know, I cannot blame anybody. I don't know enough. We don't know enough. I've read books about it, and I still don't know enough. Books are opinions. That's all they are. McMaster's book was the best I've ever read. And if I agree with that, man, the corruption is deep, dirty, and it exists today. That's what I see. But nonetheless, what was messed up was this country never felt as a nation that we belong. We didn't have the leadership. We didn't have the leadership under Kennedy, under Johnson, and under Nixon to do what had to be done to have this nation focus on getting this job done, fixing what was wrong in Vietnam. Why else would we be there? Why did we go there? Kennedy called it the domino theory. As we let nations around the world fall to communism, that was what it was about, to fight communism around the world. And certainly it was the communists in North Vietnam taking over South Vietnam that we try to prevent. And we just did a horrible job. We weren't prepared. And it cost this country dearly. I talked earlier about, you know, we are who we were in the beginning. My youth, growing up poor, and it's who I am. It's, it's who will always be. I've always accepted that in some ways. You, you romanticize it. I remember watching the movie The Warriors, all the gangs in New York coming down to Coney Island. <laughs> I, 
That was my life. Because I was there in Coney Island and brought them all down to Coney Island. So they see that. It's great, but it was a tough, tough way to grow up. And I'd look at Vietnam. I was young enough. It stayed with me all my life. The fact that I knew we won the war. I knew that the American lives that were lost should never, ever have been in vain. We should have saved those South Vietnamese people, the wonderful, just wonderful people of South Vietnam. They were so, it's so sad that we didn't, but we were never focused on winning that war as a nation. We were focused on, hell no, I won't go. Burning draft cards, burning the American flag, burning, doing everything, leaving America. I got to admit, the only ones that I keep on hearing, well, if Trump gets elected, I'm going to leave the country. Well, they don't. They never, Madonna's still here. Who else has been yelling and screaming? They have a Hollywood. But actually, in the 60s, those hippies and stuff, oh, leaving the country. They left. They went to Canada. The hell with America. Okay. But you know what? This country wasn't prepared, and we have the scars. And you know what? There's no question about it. I'm still angry. Yeah, it affects me. It absolutely does. Maybe it doesn't affect me as much as a lot of other things affect me. So it goes on the back burner. But it's there, and it comes up, and I feel it. And there's others. The Vietnam vets don't talk about it a lot. I recently did something with Daryl Issa to present pins to Vietnam vets all over San Diego. And he asked me to speak, so I went to these events. I think I've talked about this. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, three days, three different towns within San Diego. And I looked out at the audience, and there were hundreds of Vietnam vets, and they brought their families, wives, and a lot of cases, their kids and grandkids. And they were thrilled and proud to get this little lapel pin. And I was thrilled and proud to be there and be part of it. And I saw Daryl Issa shake the hand of each and every one of them. And it was great. But you look at these people and you say, wow, they're so in the background. They don't want to come out. I didn't want to come out. I came back in 66 and all throughout the 70s. Even say, we lost a generation of Americans, and the only thing that saved us was when Jan Scruggs, God bless Jan Scruggs, the founder, the guy that just really ramrodded that Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in 1982. And it just, it changed my life. And I think a lot of other Vietnam vets, but so many have never been there. So many, you know, just live in the shadows and have never come out. What was our losses? I don't know. I haven't spent enough time dwelling on it. My God, I spend enough time thinking about it as a veteran. And it's, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm saying it's a necessary thing. I can't hold it back. You know, those thoughts come bubbling up to the surface at the weirdest times, and we deal with it. But the country, does the country deal with it? Has the country 
at large really dealt with the mistake. And I say existential. It changed the course and the direction of the country. It was a mistake. How much damage did it do to the country? I don't know. I don't think this country has ever sat down and taken the time to figure out the damage done by how we handled the war in Vietnam. Why didn't we? I mean, we won that war. We won that war. You talk to a Vietnam vet, every single one of them will tell you, we were winning when I left. That was the bumper sticker. That was so true. We were winning when I left. If you speak to 100 Vietnam vets, yeah, there's going to be some who say, oh, I don't know, I don't want to care. I was treated like garbage and this. Okay, but we were winning when I left. Yes, each and every one of us, we always were winning. And we gave it away. We walked away. We didn't, I can go into a lot of details of it, but the fact is, these are the things that we have to deal with not being prepared to deal with these things cost us daily than 9-11. Did we not see 9-11 coming? Did we not see what happened? 241 Marines killed in Lebanon? TWA in, what was that, 1983? And Rob Stenham, the American Navy diver, who was killed, thrown off that plane. Well, this is where 9-11 came from. And there were other incidences that happened. The USS Cole, 17 sailors killed. These things went on. They were there. We saw them happening. We saw what was happening with radical Islam. That's what it was. But we refused to say what was going on. We refused to talk about it. It was just like, what did we do to stop it? Did we know about it? You don't think that the FBI met, talked to, tracked those perpetrators of that crime, of that attack on the existence of the United States of America? They did. Were we prepared for that? 1993, the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center. It happened. It was right there. You don't hear about it. No one's talking about it. Every anniversary of 9-11, that's right, September 11th, every year, it's an anniversary. Do we talk about what happened in 1993? The same thing, the attack on the World Trade Center? Oh, it wasn't airplanes. They tried to blow it up. From within, that didn't work. Hey, let's try airplanes. Do we talk about it as Americans? Does the Department of Defense spend a lot of time on it? What about our intelligence agencies? Or are they too busy trying to just frame Donald Trump? Because that's what it seems like our intelligence agencies are doing. It seems like they're doing the bidding of the Democrat Party. And maybe that's a, a harsh statement to condemn our intelligence agencies, including the FBI. But as a citizen, it, it's certainly how it looks from here. What's going on? What's going on with the CIA? People feel strongly about things and then say, okay, Mike, you're talking about war. Well, I don't think COVID's war. Well, maybe it is germ warfare. But 
There are other things that people feel very strongly about that could be a threat to our existence. People feel that strongly about Roe v. Wade. 1973, Roe v. Wade. Before 1973, abortion was illegal. Well, it wasn't illegal every place. Each state can, you know, decide for itself. But then Roe v. Wade made it legal everywhere. It was illegal to make it illegal. So we use that date, January 22nd, 1973. Boom, Roe v. Wade. Why do they think it's existential? Because there's like over a million abortions a year. Now, do we know how many abortions a year there were before Roe v. Wade? No, because it wasn't categorized. Since Roe v. Wade, we know how many abortions there are. Now, I knew when I was a kid in junior high school, not just high school, junior high school, I knew of girls having abortions. In high school? Yeah. And I'm going back a long time, way before Roe v. Wade. So it's not like one day abortion appeared. Oh, it didn't exist before Roe v. Wade. It existed, and it existed in a big way. Was it bigger after Roe v. Wade? Absolutely. And is it the threat to our existence? If you take, this is the 49th year. Next year is 50 years. That's right, 223. 50 years. In 50 years, over a million a year. Over a million a year. That's 50 million lives. You tell me, is that existential enough for you? For crying out loud, 50 million lives. Now, we could say that there were just as many abortions, and you could call it a choice, and you could argue what you want. But half the country, or maybe a little more than half the country, says abortion takes the life of a living being. You could deny it. You could say, oh, no, it's just an embryo, it's a zygote, it's a this, it's call it what you want. It's a human being. And you could say, oh, does life start at this, you know, you do what you want to do, say what you want to say. You want to rationalize it, make yourself feel better about it, fine with me. The fact of the matter is that there are 50 million, over 50 million, probably closer to 60 million abortions since 1973. And we could... Limit that in so many ways. It's not Roe v. Wade, by the way. I'm sorry. I I don't agree with that. It's what we've done since. It's how we've handled it, like everything else. What we weren't prepared for, we haven't handled at all. What laws do we have that someone under 18 has to have parental consent? We don't have those kind of laws. What laws do we have, you know, that enforce Roe v. Wade? I think it's you can't have an abortion. after 24 weeks or whatever, all those things. We could have done a lot to limit abortion, but we have it. So there's arguments on all those points. And all I'm saying is that so many things threaten us. Watergate threatened us. Clinton, if you're asking me, that was a big threat to the United States, okay? Carter's stagflation. Jimmy Carter, as a president to me, was... Pretty bad. We're talking about stagflation. We're talking about Iran. 
We can talk about a lot of other things. It was a disaster, race issues, and more, all of which, you know, are real, but which of them actually threatened or actually changed our lives? Roe v. Wade, I got to say, top of the list. Just think of it. How much is this abortion issue, pro-choice, pro-life, determined the outcome of how many elections since then? All right? But as important as I agree the abortion issue is, I won't make over a million lives a year sound trivial. I'm not going to do that. But none of the issues, none of the issues people are passionate about are trivial. But they can and will be handled and hopefully fixed within the framework of this nation, okay? It's those threats that can destroy our nation from within that we have to turn our attention to now, that challenge our very existence. More often than not, it's the outside forces that are using some of these. So when we look at the issues that are going on inside the country, within the four walls of America, And you say, well, that's not China. But these people, they're using these issues to keep us divided, to divide and conquer the America that we love, to change us so substantially. So they're joining forces by using these devices, issues like communism versus capitalism. That's our economic foundation. If you have forces out there, this growing communism in America that's going to change the economic foundation of the United States, all right? Climate change being used to divert our resources and our attention. I don't have to tell you how many building permits do you have to get. So your building doesn't get built or it costs hundreds and hundreds of thousands or millions more to develop property. What's the price that we're paying for this war against climate change? It's the war against us. It's a war that's being fought against us. National health care. What about that? National health care. Single-payer health care. We have the best health care system on planet Earth, hands down. What got us here? Competition. That's it. I I have no other excuse for victory in business in America than competition. That's what makes us great. Competition. We work hard because there's others, you know, we have to beat everybody. And then you get all these different, you know, there's Kaiser over here and there's this one over there. And they're all competing against each other. You're going to make one single payer and you think that's going to help? Why? It's going to dumb down medicine is all it's going to do. Take a look at single-payer national health care everywhere from Canada to Europe, Germany, England. People have to wait literally, if not months, years for elective surgery. You want a new hip, a new knee? I got so many friends that are getting hip replacements. Oh, my God. But you get to that point in life. But, you know, elective surgeries, you have an accident. I have people I know who have had serious accidents in Canada and in Germany, those two places particularly. I think I've heard a few stories back from England as well, but certainly in Germany where someone had a serious accident and they were 
fortunate enough to have money so they didn't have to go into the, the national health system. They said, true story, it's been a while, but they would have just removed her leg had she gone into the national, whereas she was able to pay for a doctor because there's still private health care everywhere. If you got the money, you could pay for it. So she was able to pay for it and save her leg and went through everything. But there was no question had she gone to the local hospital and let them just take her in and put her through the process, they would have removed her leg. And then these are the things you don't hear about. These are the things that you don't get to see. And people from all over the planet still come to America, to the Mayo Clinic and all these places. There's so many of them today. It's America. It's the greatest healthcare delivery system on earth. And if you can't afford it, there's so many ways. Some people have to, you know, they'll say, well, yeah, I have a job and I can't quit my job because my job gives me health care. I get that. I get that. There's all kinds of injustices. You want to call it an injustice? We make decisions based on all the factors that we have to put together. How many people have jobs where they live because they don't want to move? How many people have to move to places they don't want to live because they have a job offer? I lived through that as a little kid. My dad had office to be on the radio. He went to the ABC School of Broadcasting right after World War II, right on the matchbook cover, ABC School of And he did it. We lived in the projects. We didn't have money to take the bus to Coney Island, okay? A 10-cent bus ride beyond our reach. That's just the way it was. So when he got the offer, a few years after he graduated from this ABC School of Broadcasting, and he was a hell of a broadcaster. Boy, when he spoke, you listened. I mean, he was fantastic. And where does he get his job offer in Ohio? Eventually, he come up, they're yelling, they're screaming, they're fighting. I'm not leaving. I can't go to You know, we got it. That's where the job offer is. That's what I've been working for all these years. And we couldn't go. We could go, but partly because we couldn't afford to go. There was that, but I think we could have overcome that. But there was also like, I don't want to leave where I live. We lived in horrible condition. It's just the way it is. That dream is gone. Those years of work and preparation, I want to say they went away. He couldn't take the job, so he moved on to other things. But the benefits he got by the self-improvement, by doing those things, that would have made him a great talking head on any TV newscast, which there weren't many at the time, but had there been any, it would have been phenomenal. That those things, you don't say they went to waste. They made him the articulate, charismatic guy that he became. And his success in life was the perseverance that he had to get through that. That's what gave him the same perseverance to get through going to school to get his insurance license. So I don't want to say it was all a waste. It wasn't a waste, but it was a shame. And these are the decisions you have to make. This is what happens. So if he had a job offer that included health benefits, health care for his family, oh my God, this is horrible. I got to take this job. I don't even want to take this job, oh, but I'm getting a decent paycheck and they're taking care of my health. 
These are just things you have to consider. It's just the way it is. Crying out loud. That's what people sit there and tell you. Oh, it's not fair. I'd rather have the national health care. People are nuts, man. People don't understand. They just don't get. Sometimes they say the grass is greener. But let me tell you something. The grass is greener where you water it. <laughs> when, when the grass is watered, it's going to be greener. So stay home. Take care of what you got. Make the best of it, and you'll be fine. But then we talk about those issues, and you put these issues together. And open borders. There are people crying for open borders. They think when people are being threatened around the world, they have the right to come here, just like the pioneers did in the 1700s, the 1800s. The people who came here from all over. Argue what you want. But would we have an immigration system that has grown as the country's grown to 320 million legal residents? How many illegal? We don't know. It could be 10%, okay? It could be close to 30 million people living here illegally, never got through legally. Was it easy to get here legally? Back in the day, they emptied out all the debtor prisons in Australia, and that's how South Carolina <laughs> was founded, right? When I was a kid, I'm pretty sure Ellis Island was still open, and that's how people came to Ellis Island. It was pretty bad, but that's the way it was. Now open borders, that's what they want, open borders. I, I don't have to spell out the disaster, but let's talk about what's going on on the southern border. It's crazy. Race issues, I'm not going to go through that again. Well, maybe I will. But what are the lessons? The lesson is to keep our eye on the ball, to keep arguing, keep fighting. We were born fighting, fight together against our common enemies. That's what we're talking about. And we have plenty of common enemies, including when you lump together all the issues I just spelled out, taking them together, the two sides, keep them front and center. This debate continues to deteriorate as groups like Antifa and BLM take sides. Pro protests turn into riots. And Democrats keep calling for defunding police, taking away their limited liability, and not keeping criminals in jail. DAs dismissing charges altogether. Taken together, this can destroy our culture from within and prevent us from preparing for what is attacking us from outside our borders, including the crisis at our southern border. I'm going to end with this because there's a, an amazing growth in the power and influence of cartels. Amazing, okay? Criminals, drugs, fentanyl, terrorists coming here, coming through that southern border. Terrorists. In 2021, 23 terrorists, ISIS terrorists, were captured at four different border crossings. How many got away? Over 600,000 gotaways were estimated last year. You have to remember, the terrorists are the best trained with the most capable. How many got away that didn't get caught? We have 23 that got caught. I say there were probably more that got away. These are terrorists. They're here to destroy America. You don't want to tell me that's an existential threat? 
that is a threat to our existence. I got to tell you, Ukraine can turn into World War III. Listen to Senator Coons. We were talking about no boots on the ground. He's talking about, well, we got to get boots on the ground. Were those his exact words? No, but that's what he was saying. We're going to be dealing with China. They're wanting to take a one-China policy, which Biden agrees with, by the way. Then we have, you know, radical Islamic terrorists, Iran, the Mideast, Israel. These are all real issues, and we got to keep our eye on the ball. That's where the ball is. That's the bouncing ball. We have to look at these things because if we keep on focusing on the petty issues and don't understand them as petty issues, then we're going to keep focusing on that and the real big issues are going to escape us and it's going to bite us in the ass. And it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be trivial. It's not going to just bite us in the butts, baby. It's going to seriously damage America. We've been around for 245 years. The Roman Empire was only around for 500 years. And what says that we're even entitled to stay around for longer? Are we going to be the same country five years from now, 10 years from now? How much influence is what's going on right now in Europe going to have on the future of America? How much influence is what's going on in China? If we don't build our military, if we don't spend our money, if we don't focus on what we have to focus on, and if we're going to sit here and just wait for the next election, and that's the point of what I'm saying. As citizens, we don't just have the right, we don't just have the responsibility. If we want to do what we have to do to protect our families and all the things that our government is supposed to do, we better make sure that we have the government that can do, will do, is doing what they're supposed to do to protect us, to ensure that we, the people, are safe, organized, with a purpose and a plan to succeed. And if we're not doing everything, to say, and by the way, and in so many cases we are, look at what happened in Virginia. Look at what's happening all over the country. I don't want to dwell on the bad, and I don't, certainly don't want to end up in today's podcast or any other and the negative. Because you got to look at citizen involvement at every level. Look at those people who are running for office for all the right reasons. Not the ones who are going to go in there to, to get the power, the influence, and the money. The ones who are in there for the right reasons, to make America a better place. Let's get behind those people. We are getting closer to the election. And I also want to say, and every podcast I need to, it's so important to talk about, Roland, to remember, the huge motorcycle ride to Washington, D.C., every year on Memorial Day, to remind this country and remind the world on how important our veterans are, how important the families, the families that support those veterans, the families of the veterans who are serving all around the country today, those are known as Blue Star families. 
and certainly to support, salute, and appreciate the Gold Star families, the families of those who we've lost. And get to Washington. Do what you can. If you're not going, support someone who is. Make sure that Rolling to Remember in Washington, D.C., which is organized and supported by the AMVETS of America, support the AMVETS, join the AMVETS, do everything you can, because the survival of America, the front line, the very front lines, is our military. And if you want our military to grow, it's a volunteer military. We're not drafting people. We're not bringing people in. That's what Russia's doing. And that's why they're losing in Ukraine. I didn't say they're going to lose, but they are losing. And it's the morale of the soldiers, the constricts, the ones that they are drafting and putting in there. We don't want to be in that position. We don't want to invade foreign countries, but we want to make sure we have a military that can stand up to anyone who thinks that they can invade us. And in order to do that, you got to show these kids coming up today how we treat our military. Want to watch how we treat our military? You want to see the best of the best? Take a look at the AMBETS. Take a look at Rolling to Remember, Washington, D.C., Memorial Day. Watch it. Look at it. Demand coverage of it. And if you can support, if you could be there, that'd be great. Whether it's on your motorcycle, fly out, get a car, drive out, do what you can. Be there. Yes, it's a motorcycle event because motorcycles just attract. People just see it. The attention that we get is huge. And we need people to see how much we care about our POWs, our MIAs. We care about 22 a day committing suicide. We got to handle that. We demonstrate every year how much we love and care about our fellow vets and their families and our future members of the armed forces of the United States of America. Support it. Be there. Help us. Because helping us is helping our country. It's helping you and it's helping your families, everyone you love and care about. I'm New York Mike. I love and care about all of you. Thank you for listening to Roll Right Radio. And I'm out. Thanks for listening to the Roll Right Radio podcast. Listen, follow, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.